In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Today on Money Tales, our guest Paul Ollinger says there's a myth in America that striking it rich early and not having to work again is enviable. This is Cami, and we explore this topic and Paul's stark realization that you get a lot more from work than a paycheck. Paul's currently a fellow podcaster and stand-up comedian. If you're not familiar with this crazy money podcast, we recommend checking it out. This is Sandy. As you'll hear, Paul was an early employee of Facebook and left after a successful number of years to test the myth. There are some really special parts about retiring early, including moving closer to his parents and being there for them during the sunset years of their lives. We cover a lot of ground with Paul, including the concept of knowing how much money is enough. In the financial insight at the end of the interview, we explore this topic further. But first, here's my and Cammie's conversation with Paul. Hello, Paul Ollinger. Welcome to Money Tales. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate you sharing your time. We'd love to start with you providing a, as brief as you can, a little summary of your background, your journey to this point, and share a couple pivotal moments. My journey to this point. Well, I guess the short answer to my financial point or where I am as a professional and human financial entity, along with my wife, is that I was an early employee at Facebook. I was on the sales team and I was pursuing my passion of stand-up comedy in LA, working full-time as a comedian, hosting out at the improvs in Orange County. And then I got engaged to my wife and I thought, you know, maybe having a decent job would be a good idea to help pay for this family we're going to want to start. And I got a call from a friend of mine with whom I used to work on the sales team at Yahoo. And he said, do you want to join this 250 person company called Facebook? And I said, sounds like this company could be as big as MySpace someday. <laughs> and it was. So I was right. <laughs> it's great. You're a fortune teller as well as a comedian. Yeah. Well, I wish I had the insights to understand how big Facebook was going to be. I would have either joined later or stayed longer. But no, I was very privileged and excited and proud to have been a part of some of the formative years of a very important company. Paul, say more about wishing you stayed longer. Do you have regrets about that? You know, we can all examine our lives with 2020 vision and hindsight. And certainly from a financial standpoint, if one were to view the decision to leave only through a financial lens, then sure, leaving when I left in 2011 wasn't the best idea. But you know, my heart was in a different place. I wanted to do other things. I wanted to be around my family back here in Atlanta where I live or where I grew up. My mom was sick. My dad eventually got sick. And when I wanted to get back into the comedy thing, 
And so I don't know what would have happened if I stayed, but I didn't stay and my life is pretty darn good. So I can't really complain about, you can't worry about coulda, shoulda, woulda in hindsight about financial decisions that might've worked out better when my life as a whole is very fulfilling right now. We're glad to hear that. Paul, take us back to your childhood. Tell us what it was like when you were growing up and how money was handled in your household. Do you guys talk about it much? Well, Dr. Freud, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) My household was very loving and chaotic at the same time. Chaos might be a bit of an exaggeration, but I was one of six kids in a very loving but modest home. You forewarned me that we'd be talking about my childhood and what I learned about money as a child. And I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, I think my parents were just, I think they just had a lot on their plates. And my dad had a good job as an engineer for the local power company, Georgia Power, but it wasn't an extraordinary job. And the six kids were a lot. My mom had a sister who passed away very young. And so she was sort of the surrogate mother to my cousins. And there were six of them. There were, yeah, there was a grandchild that entered the family at a pretty early age. So my mom kind of had, you know, like anywhere between six and 13 kids, depending upon how you, how you measure it. And so I just think there were a lot of demands on, on her time. And from a financial standpoint, my parents were just very frugal people from a different generation. And we didn't talk a lot about money. The message that I think I heard the most was we can't afford it. We can't afford this or that when I wanted, you know, whatever shiny object that kids request. It was like, oh, we can't afford it. And I don't think that was actually true. I think they could afford a lot more things than they bought. They just were very frugal people who lived very well within their means. And because they did that, they were able to send us to Catholic school, which isn't as expensive as private school, but it's a whole lot more expensive than free. Anyway, long story short, my family was loving and supportive. There was just a lot going on. Did they teach you through examples or words about how to be frugal? I think it was mostly example. I, I don't recall talking a lot about money as a kid other than sort of just you save your money. You Just because you have money doesn't mean even if you can afford something doesn't mean you should buy it, things like that. But my dad was a depression era kid. My mom was raised by a woman who was very much affected by the depression. She was raised in, my grandfather died when my mom was, I think, two. And so my grandmother raised her and her, my mom and her sister in very austere environments. And so my parents would do things like wash and reuse tinfoil and plastic sandwich bags and things like that. And, you know, the air conditioning in the deep South came on um, somewhere around Bastille Day. (laughs) I just remember sweating a lot as a child. That was (laughs) basically what sharing a room with my brother and brothers and sweating a lot with the windows open, the, the attic fan on in July. My dad would break down somewhere after July 4th, or if we had company over. I remember like my parents would have friends over for dinner and the air conditioning would go on around, I don't know, one o'clock on Friday afternoon. And then it would stay on until the next morning, I guess. And then it would go off and we'd all be like, damn it. (laughs) So Paul, growing up in that environment, did you personally dream about money? 
have any aspirations? That I were- did. I did. I was a very earnest child and adolescent and then young adult. And the way I interpreted my parents' situation was that they were very stressed about money. Now, that may or may not have actually been the case, but that was what I internalized. And so my thought was, well, I don't want to be stressed about money, so I'm going to make a lot of money and then I won't be stressed. <laughs> Everybody walks around with their own money illusions or delusions. And that was mine was that if I make a lot of money, I'll never stress about money. And of course, you can make a ton of money and still stress about money. You can have a lot of money and stress about money. That's what I observed. That was the calculus that I did. And so I thought, I'm going to make good grades so I can go to a good college, so I can get a good job, so I can make a lot of money, and then I will be happy. That was sort of the logic as it worked out. Uh, Even if I never even got to the and then I will be happy part, it was just, I will at least be secure. I think security was a was a big deal. Yeah, Paul, we had the pleasure of hearing you interview your dad since you're a fellow podcaster on your fabulous podcast, Crazy Money. And your dad didn't come across as someone who stressed about money. He had a lot of faith. And so where did you get these concerns that they were stressed? Well, I think those were the rationalizations of an old man. <laughs> but I say that with great love, by the way. The idea to interview my father came when I was driving him back from one of his multitude of doctor's visits in the last couple of years of his life. I was privileged to be able to come home and spend a lot of time with my mom and dad in their last few years. And I have zero regrets about being a meaningful part of their lives in those years. And we go to the doctor a lot because that's what you do when you're 87, 88, 90, 93. He just passed away a couple of months ago at, at 93. And so, one day I was driving home for the doctor and I was just trying to talk to him and just kind of, what can I learn from him? Because I knew our time was limited. And I said, well, we're talking about work and success and things like that. And I said, well, what do you think you would have done differently if you'd have made, say, 25% more money when you were, you know, 55 or 40, 45? And he said, he didn't really think about it or he didn't really answer. And then I said, well, well, would you have been less stressed about money? And he said, I don't remember ever being stressed about money. And I almost drove off the road (laughs) because I was like, that stress was like this constant presence in our house. I have a joke. I'm like, you know, anxiety was my confirmation name. It just always felt like it was there. And I told my brother what he said and he was like, oh my gosh, he couldn't believe it. But maybe it was I think we all create these narratives to explain how we got to where we got in life. And I think maybe mine was off. Maybe I misinterpreted him just saying, we don't need it, so we're not going to buy this stuff. Maybe I interpreted that as stress. Maybe I interpreted the answer, we can't afford it, as that's a bad thing. Or maybe what they were saying was, you don't need it because it's a bunch of crap, so we're not going to buy it for you. And I interpreted that as, as lack of resources or something like that. And maybe my father's rationalization or the narrative he created for himself was that, hey, we had everything we wanted. How could you have possibly felt deprived? Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know which of those things is actually true, but but certainly I think the older you get, the more you're going to say, well, this is the defining narrative that affects my life. You heard the podcast, so you know my father was like, he doesn't place a lot of value on material, or he didn't place a lot of value on material things. And so a lot of the stuff that I'm sure his greedy kids asked for were things he, he didn't see a lot of value in. 
Paul, I'm really glad that you're bringing up this idea of these narratives and these assumptions that we can make because mm-hmm. it happens all the time in so many different contexts and especially in families and especially about money, which is why we've been really excited about having these money conversations with people just to raise awareness and, and really explore what messages people take away from their different experiences. But let's jump ahead to your adult life. So <laughs> you get a, a call from a friend saying Facebook is hiring. You're excited. They're going to be the next MySpace. <laughs> yeah. And you start working there. What was it like? I, I think so many people want to know what it was like at some of these companies, especially Facebook in the early days. Was money on your mind? Well, you know, it's funny. We didn't know what a juggernaut it was until it just kept unfolding itself as being bigger than what we thought it was going to be the previous quarter. And I remember Zuck at the All Hands talking about how, you know, we're going to connect humankind. And honestly, I just was like, I don't, I, I don't know what he's talking about. You know, like that's too big of an idea for me to get my head around. I literally was sitting there going like, we just want to beat Yahoo in MySpace. And I'd worked at Yahoo before. And Mark was just, he just really had a clear vision as to how things were going to work. And this is the first time in my career I ever felt old. I was 38 working at a company founded by 20-year-olds, basically. And they were maybe 23 when I got there. And so I felt old. And, and what he was talking about, the way he was talking about creating value for users and basically ignoring the needs of the advertisers until after the IPO, which was a year after I left. That was a very radical thing to do at the time. And it was difficult to sit as, as part of the sales team. We basically sat between the company and the marketers who we are in essence telling, you don't know how to market. You don't know how to use this platform to reach consumers. And then we wouldn't tell them how, or we gave them solutions in the early days that were highly inadequate. It was both really, really cool place to work and it was very difficult to work there. It was cool in the sense that you'd have Facebook open on a plane or something, and it was still early enough that people would be like, oh, I'm on Facebook. Or people would say, what's that? And you'd try to explain Facebook to them. And so a lot of the job early on was just explaining what Facebook is to 55-year-old marketers, people who are my age now. you know. And it was very different. Now, recall that this is the first platform on the internet that, on which people use their real names and their real identities. And that was both scary and very, very interesting all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And are you being compensated with equity and it's a incentive-based model or how's that work? Well, the way it worked when I started was when you signed your, your offer letter, you get a certain number of stock options. It became restricted stock, I believe, not terribly long after I started, but you get a certain number of stock options that vest over 48 months. You have to work there for 12 months before you get your first vesting. They call it your cliff. And so a quarter of your equity vested on your first anniversary and then it vested monthly for the remainder of your time there. For the sales team, we were on a a base salary and then commission structure and the equity vested over time. And at first, we had no idea how to value the equity. You could say, well, it's worth whatever they say it is on paper. And then I think maybe six months or a year after I started, Microsoft made an investment in the company that valued it at, this would have been 2008, I think, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it valued it at like nine or 
$14 billion or something. And all of a sudden everybody goes, let me get out my spreadsheet (laughs) and figure out how much this equity is going to be worth. And then you go, oh, that's a pretty interesting number. And, you know, by the time I left, the company was probably, I I don't know what the market cap was when they went public, but it was in the um, 100 billion maybe or something like that. I don't know. But it was it was a big number that very few of us anticipated would ever get. And now, of course, it's many multiples of that. So a lot of people had their, you know, their little spreadsheets that you keep going like, okay, my equity vested this month, that could be blank at a market cap of whatever that translates into a per share price of whatever. And it's hard not to do, but I think it's also not terrifically healthy because that's, if you're only working for the money, then you're probably not going to enjoy your job terribly. How did that change the conversations? The minute that Microsoft investment happened, how did it change the conversations with you and your colleagues? Well, it was seen as very poor manners to discuss equity. You would never bring it up in a meeting. You would never bring it up in a public environment. But you and your pal might be having coffee or a beer after work, and you'd be like, what do you think about this? You know. can you believe like where, where this thing is headed? What do you think it could get to? Et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, you might have talks with your financial advisors and things like that to say, well, what if it gets to this? Or what if it gets to that? Or what should I be doing now? One of the things that I wasn't too worried about saving for retirement as I saw this equity, you know, I mean, I was definitely maxing out our 401k just because of the matching program and stuff like that. But beyond that, it was like, I think my retirement is going to be very much handled from this equity portion of the comp package. And so there wasn't a lot of worrying about, you know, are we putting aside enough for this or that? Because it, it became apparent very early on that this was going to be a, a pretty big win. And you said that you decided to leave the company before the IPO. I left in 2011. And that was the IPO, I believe, was June of 2012. Yeah. And so can you tell us what the conversations you were having with your wife were like at that time? Because that must have been a pretty big decision. You already mentioned that you had some other things pulling at your heart, at your mind. but Yeah, I was fully vested before I left. The timing of the IPO wasn't really relevant to the, the decision to leave, other than the fact that you know, if you leave a company, you have to, you have to exercise your options and that requires a meaningful amount of cash. But at the time, you know, there were secondary markets that had evolved that I don't think had been around for very long then. But, you know, there was essentially a market where you could raise cash with equity in a private company. And so from a logistical standpoint, it wasn't like if I leave, I can't, I don't have the money to exercise these options and then cover the tax bill. So that wasn't really the discussion. The discussion with my wife was, what happened was Facebook asked me to move up to Palo Alto from Los Angeles where I was running the West Coast sales team. And I just didn't really feel like I had three years of deeply felt commitment in me for the company. And I moved home and left the company shortly afterwards. And the conversations with my wife were like, well, we've, you know, it looks like we're going to have about this much money and we should be able to figure life out with that kind of a reserve. And frankly, I wasn't really happy with, there's a few things that in retrospect don't matter at all, but I I just wasn't happy with, I I didn't feel great about going to work every day. And at a certain point, 
And there are many, many challenges about money that I didn't even know I was going to learn about when you quit your job. But, you know, at that point, I kind of had this, you know, I've got this much money in the bank. I shouldn't be doing anything I'm not excited about every single day. Can you tell us a little bit about those challenges that you didn't know about until hindsight? I believe there's a myth in America that not working is an enviable way to live one's life. And it doesn't take too much time not working to realize that there's a whole lot more one gets from work than just a paycheck. And I didn't know that. You asked me if I regret leaving. I regret the way I left. I regret not fully evaluating the role work was playing in my life before I pulled the ripcord. I regret not working through some of the issues that were preventing me from from seeing the good things, the very, very good things at work, including, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, there's belongingness, there's self-esteem, which one gets from work. One does not generate a lot of self-esteem in the steam bath at the country club after playing <laughs> golf four days a week. You know, it's really fun to quit your job and for three to six months to live without sales quotas over your head and to not have to do you know, evaluations and to do next year planning and all that kind of stuff. It's really great to not have those kinds of responsibilities for a little while. And then eventually you look in the mirror and go, well, what the hell do I do now? What is life all about absent the necessity to go earn a living? Who am I? What is my role in the world? What's my identity? How do I answer the question, what do you do? And all that sounds trivial, and it is trivial if in comparison to people who are really struggling with finances. But you know, one of the people that I interviewed for my podcast is Sir Angus Deaton, who is a Princeton economics professor, winner of the Nobel Prize, and co-author of the paper with Daniel Kahneman that concluded that past $75,000 a year, there's no additional happiness with increased income. Now, you guys are in the Bay Area. Well, Can I adjust are, that a little bit, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Maybe call it maybe two hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is. The actual number is less important than the concept. Past a certain point, more money isn't going to make you happier. The things in life that lead to happiness are having good relationships and doing work that you're proud of. That's pretty much it. Not getting twisted around the axle of comparing yourself to other people, and when you quit work you lose the vitality that gives you self-respect, even if it also creates a lot of stress in your life, sometimes more than others. And so those are some of the things that I learned about money by making a pretty good amount and having the flexibility to quit your job. You know, my dad said, just because you can afford it doesn't mean you should buy it. Well, just because you can afford to quit doesn't mean you should quit because there's a whole lot more from work that you're getting than just a paycheck. And I didn't know that. I really didn't know that. It was a pretty naive place to come from, honestly, in retrospect. Well, it's interesting, just looking back chronologically at the time you left Facebook, you were part of, you know, kind of a, a new tide of people who were making that decision much earlier in life with even a longer runway ahead of you. So we really appreciate you sharing that learning with us. I, I think there's a lot of really true, great wisdom in there. I think retirement is a huge adjustment for anyone. I see a lot of my friends who are, you know, my age within five years who are senior partners at law firms or they're 
senior partners at consulting firms and they're going 100 miles an hour. They've been going 100 miles an hour since they were 28. And at some point within five or 10 years, they're going to hit this mandatory retirement age of 62 or 65 or whatever it is. And they're going to get whiplash because you go from going full speed to having 100% flexibility. And if it's anything like what happened to me, it foreshadows death in a way that you really can't imagine. For the first time in my life, I saw the world go on without me in a way that I wasn't prepared to see. And I was like, oh, wow, that's what's going to happen when I die, (laughs) is that the world's going to go on without me and everybody's going to be just fine. And, you know, I think retirement is a huge adjustment that we don't prepare for very well. People don't want to talk about it. They find out, oh, you had enough money to retire early? Screw you. You're so lucky. Well, I was lucky. But it also presented me with a whole slew of new challenges that I had no idea existed out there. I would caution anybody who's thinking about pulling the ripcord to do a very deep dive on your values, to do a very deep dive on how you see life working out post-retirement and where you see yourself creating value for the world and yourself on an ongoing basis after you make that change. You know, golf is great. I love golf. It ain't that great. It's not a source (laughs) of a lot of purpose and value in people's lives. That's great, Paul. Paul, would you share with us, you've got a kids, I think. I do. Do you talk to them about, I don't know how old they are, but are there any conversations around money and with them? Yes. My kids are nine. I have a nine-year-old daughter and an 11-year-old son. And it's really interesting how much I learn by watching them interact with the world around money. I moved back into this beautiful home on this street that I aspired to when I was a kid. And Mm. yes, there's a lot of Freudian conclusions you can draw from that. And so I feel like, oh, look, I've made it. Look at me. This is, this is what success looks like. And of course, what happens when you make a little bit of money is you start hanging out with other people that have a little bit of money or have a lot of money. And you know, no matter how much you have, there's always somebody with more. <laughs> and my son came home when he was six years old from his friend's house. And he, and he said, hey, dad, when are we going to hire a chef? And I was like, oh, a chef, huh? You know, I was like, uh, how about Chef Boy RD? How about that? Because, you know, I thought, here I am going like, look how well we're doing. And he comes back and he sees this other level of affluence that, you know, there's always somebody with more. There's that family that's got the, if you've got enough money to fly first class, there's the other family that's flying net jets. If you got net jets, there's the other family that has the G5. There's no end to it. So we talked to them about that. We remind them that we're very fortunate and that there's other people with more. We also talk about how just because you see people consuming more doesn't mean they necessarily have it. Just because you see people living more modestly doesn't mean they don't have flexibility to do different things. We try to be as honest as we possibly can about where we are without giving them too much information and just try to remind them that we got to be grateful for our health and the other things in life that money can augment but not replace. Would you choose wisdom or wealth to pass to the next generation and why? Definitely wealth. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course I'd choose wisdom. If Without wisdom, you won't be grateful for whatever you have. And wealth isn't a specific number. It's an understanding of the value of what you have relative to your wants and needs. I've read probably... 80 books on wealth and happiness and well-being in the past few years. And 
you don't have to read very many until you keep hitting the same themes over and over and over again. It's about gratitude and it's about living within your means. And whether you have 100,000 or 100 million, it can feel like way more than enough or it can feel like not even close to enough, depending on how you come at it. I like that. Gratitude and living within your means. It's powerful. Well, I didn't come up with it. I just summarizing it through a lot of good reading. We don't have to read 80 books. Thanks for that. (laughs) Just listen to my podcast. That's all. (laughs) Paul, will you tell us the story of creating the podcast and how you decided to do one on money? The way I got into the money topic was after I left Facebook, I kept getting asked to come speak to at conferences or at tech accelerators and incubators or this or that meeting of, of interesting people or alumni around the Atlanta area. And for probably a year, I gave this talk about insights into Facebook, what it was like, why the company was misunderstood at the time, how big it was going to get, all this kind of stuff. And after doing that for a year, I kind of felt like, you know, I've given this talk a bunch of times and it's about where I was. It's not about where I'm going. I didn't feel like I was offering them anything they couldn't get from a lot of different places. So I asked myself, well, what's an experience that I could share with a new tech founder that they might be able to get some use out of? What's a story I could tell them that somebody else wouldn't tell them? And I told them the story of retiring early and feeling like I'd fallen on my face, that I walked away from this incredible job and then I found myself stumbling through the fog of wealth that I didn't know who I was, what I stood for, or I mean, outside of my family. I mean, I've always, I've been a committed husband and dad. That's never changed. But in terms of where I fit in the overall world, really leaving that job really did a doozy on me. Now, I haven't re-entered the corporate world. Not really. I, I went back for a year and then decided that I wanted to focus on my creative efforts. But I, I wanted those founders to understand because the subtext of the technology business is money that, you know, okay, yes, you're going to go, you're going to start a company, you're going to write a business plan, you're going to get funded. The whole plan is at some point you're going to get bought or go public and you're going to make a lot of money and then dot, 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 you will be happy because that's the goal, isn't it? Isn't the goal for all of us to make a lot of money and be happy? Well, the two aren't the same thing. And that's what I wanted to say is that when you make a lot of money, it's going to be different than you think it's going to be. And I want you to think through what you want out of work and life before you bail on work and think that meaning will find you because it doesn't find you. You have to go finding it. And I wanted to lay it out and I wanted them to understand that it wasn't as pretty and as easy as it appears to be. And, and again, I'm not asking for anybody's sympathy or empathy. I just, I wanted people to know that like, it's not the end when you get your five or 10 or 20 or whatever your number is. When you hit your number, it's not the end. It's just the beginning of a new part of your life. And if you're not careful, you're going to blow it. So that's how I got started talking about money. That's great, Paul. You're also a comedian. I am a comedian. Can't you tell? I can totally tell. Tell us about that. You know, it's so interesting and so scary for many of us to think about being that vulnerable on stage. Tell us about that. So when I came out of college, my father did us the favor of cutting us off, not cutting off the relationship, but there was no allowance when we got out of college. He was like, you have a a BA with no debt. Go for it. 
Let's see what happens. And as we talked about in that podcast episode, I knew that if, if anything ever blew up or if I got myself in real trouble, I could always go to him for help, but certainly I never did. The first few years out of college were very difficult for me financially. I was making very little money and I made some bad decisions around automotives and, and not taking care of my car. And I found myself deep in debt within a year. You know, I had probably a $6,000 credit card bill and a car that would never start. And I felt very unempowered financially. I, I did not achieve financial autonomy. And I was like, okay, this, this sucks. I don't want to live like this. I don't know how I'm going to get out of debt, but I figured I'd go back to business school. I figured I'd go to business school, figure out what I wanted to do with my career and turn up the heat on my prospects. And I would increase the slope of my career trajectory by going to business school. And I did. I went back to business school and one night I hosted a talent show and I told jokes in front of a crowd for the first time. And I did very well. I just basically made fun of everybody in the room and everybody loved it. And I killed and I felt this wave of laughter and affirmation that I had never felt in my life before. And I was like, holy cow, this is it. For, among all these very smart people, this is what makes me different. I'm not a brilliant financial guy. I'm not a brilliant analytical guy, but I can see incongruities in the world that are the basis for humor. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And I wanted to go right into comedy outside of business. This is 1997. I got out of school, but I owed $80,000 in debt. So I went into the internet business instead. But that was the night that I got bit by the comedy bug and lit a passion for comedy inside of me. That's great. Yeah. So then I worked at Yahoo and made a little bit of money, paid off my student loans. And I had enough in the bank where I could live for a year or two pretty well without doing it. And that's when I went out to LA and started working for the improvs. Yeah. You're really committed to this and now you're back. You're back doing it again. Yeah. I've been in and out. So came out of business school, worked for a company called launch.com. Yahoo bought us at the bottom of the dot-com bubble. Fortunately, that stock appreciated. Then I went and did comedy for two years, got engaged, went to Facebook for four and a half years, goofed off for a couple of years, and then got serious about comedy about seven years ago. And of course, the last few months in 2020 <laughs> have been pretty bleak as far as the comedy prospects go. But you know, I was making very good progress and headlined Caroline's on Broadway and West Side Comedy Club in New York and was, wow. was making good progress towards improving my comedy prospects and then the world shut down. But that's what happens. I'm very fortunate that I'm not relying on the massive income from comedy to pay for our rent and food. So there's a lot of people who have bigger challenges than I do in the comedy world and you know it'll come back. And if I don't have the stamina and the focus to get back into it, well, that's, that's on me. Paul, how would you describe your current relationship with money? Intentional. I would say that... I love that word, by the way. Well, thanks. I think that if you're going to make the decision to walk away from your job, to pursue something else, then you have better have an intentional relationship with money. I'm not worried about the next 20 years. I'm worried about the 20 years after that. God willing, I live that long. But I want to be prepared and I don't want my desire and passion to make a living in the creative world to supersede the obligation I have to take care of my family and put my kids through college and, and not leave my wife high and dry when she's 81 years old because I wanted to be on stage. So it's very <laughs> intentional and we 
we have very serious conversations when it comes time to make big expenditures and we sit down and say, does buying that mountain house or taking that vacation, does that put us in a position to where we lose the flexibility to do what we want to do with our days and weeks? So we understand that, for example, you know, we sat down with our financial advisors. We both got mountain house fever a year or two ago. and We wanted to buy into this new community that's being built a couple hours north of here. And so we sat down with our financial advisors and we looked at the numbers and they're like, it could work out or it might not work out. If you want to make sure it works out, it's basically like you can either send your kids to private school or buy a mountain house. Which, which one do you want to do? And we both said, it's, we want to prioritize private school. And not that not there's not some fine public schools around here, but going through what everybody's going through right now, we're very happy with the decision to keep our kids in that private school. Does the intentionality play a role in your day-to-day decisions about money, Paul? Or is it really around the big stuff? Not really. You know, we've got kind of a rhythm around what's sustainable from a month-to-month spending kind of thing. And we've got some other people with some eyes on what's happening. And day-to-day stuff is really more of a, how do you and your partner stay on the same page around money, right? And how do you avoid the day-to-day fights that really are about the underlying values that each of you comes to the marriage or table with. And again, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Every couple of any level of means comes at marriage and money and values from a different perspective. And they're not going to agree about everything. So one thing my wife and I did, which I don't think she'll mind me sharing, is to say, I don't want to have to, when I see, pull out the American Express bill, and I, I look at it pretty often, I don't want to have to be stressed when I see her getting her hair done or, you know, buying some new clothes. And so we said, okay, you know what? Let's take what we believe is an appropriate amount that we can both agree on is an appropriate amount for personal discretional spending around upkeep and clothes and uh, lunches, lunches with her friends. And cars, no, cars are more, we consider cars more of like a capital expense than an OPEX <laughs> okay. thing. I was looking for something fun that you enjoy. Yeah, no, no, I don't, look, I spend plenty of money myself, but it's more like she can just go spend that, that's on a different credit card that she pays the bill for, it's paid for almost automatically. And so I don't have to sit there and stress about how much it costs to get hair done, which most guys probably can't understand why it costs so much money, right? Not to be sexist or to engage in generalizations, but it doesn't make me happy when I see that bill come through the Amex, right? So just take it away from me. Let her do her thing. Let her make her decisions on how she's going to spend that money. And I don't have to stress about it. And it's worked out very, very well for both. I'm curious. So that's kind there, of a day-to-day thing, you know? And I'm curious, Paul, are there any spending items where you spend and you still have that sort of reaction of like, oh no, I shouldn't have done this or it's too much? For me personally? Mm-hmm. Nothing I spend money on isn't worth it. <laughs> it's the old double standard, Sandy. Come on. Just wanted to clarify. Just no, wanted to no clarify. there's things I would say outside of kind of like housing and education and stuff, travel is probably the most, the most significant line item. But it's something that we both agree that it's one of the things that we want to prioritize. It's just as expensive as travel can be, it's not something that we look back on and go, gosh, we shouldn't have upgraded or, or, you know, we shouldn't have stayed that close to the ski slope. You know, it's like, God, that was a really good trip. That was, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. I'm glad we did it. And as long as we can kind of keep the, the total number for the year 
within a reasonable amount relative to our needs and wants, then we don't squabble about where to go or how to travel for the, for the most part. Paul, as we wrap up our conversation, a question that I have is you're interviewing people about money all the time. People with lots of different views, lots of different research, academics, non-academics. Is there any wisdom that you found around money in your own life that hasn't come up in your interviews with others that you'd like to share with our listeners? That hasn't come up in our- That hasn't come up. Oh boy. I've done, I think, 85 episodes now. We've covered a lot of stuff. And as I mentioned before, I think you really start to see a lot of the same themes over and over and over again. And gratitude is really, really important. The concept of enough is really, really important. And embracing, knowing what's enough for you, embracing it and being grateful for for having enough or figuring out a way to be able to provide enough. And then the danger of comparison is something that comes up over and over and over again. And that if I were to sit here and say, I can't enjoy a feeling of enoughness because the guy down the street has a fancier car or access to a plane, then I'm never going to be happy. As soon as I get whatever amount of money it requires to get that plane or a NetJets card or whatever, it's just going to be the next thing. I interviewed Morgan Housel who is a big financial blogger, as you know, and just wrote a book called The Psychology of Money. One of his theories is that the most important thing you've got to be in control of as an adult in money is quit moving the goalposts. Just figure out the way you want to live and quit moving the goalposts. Because if you're constantly chasing a moving target, the horizon will never be within your reach and you'll never feel happy. So given where you are at this moment, what's next for you? What's your next goal that you're trying to accomplish? Mm. I really like what I'm doing. The, the podcast has really made me think a lot and reflect a lot on how fortunate we are. It's sort of an exercise in reminding me to be grateful. And beyond that, it's, it's a lot of fun to do. And I've met some tremendous people. I met you all through the podcast. And it's a joy to connect with other people and you know, to engage in these, these conversations that are, I think, very healthy. What's next? I mean, you know, understanding what I just said about moving the goalposts, I'd like to be able to do this at a bigger scale. I'm very pleased that I've got a, not a huge, but a very loyal audience right now at the podcast. I'd like to, you know, keep increasing the number of people who see value in the conversations that we're having. That would be a lot of fun. I'd like to be able to take it on the road at some point when the world reopens. But for now, it's been a real blessing to have this as something to invest in my time and effort and care while the world isn't open to uh, public gatherings quite so much. We love that you're, you're doing these podcasts. We love it as well. It's just a really neat way to expand this conversation that we think is so important and meet tremendous people along the way. So thanks for being one of those people. Thanks for having me, Cami. Sandy, do you want to ask our favorite final question? The coup de gras. Here it comes, Sandy. There we go. Hold on. Hold on. Are you ready? Hold on. Do you have your seatbelt on, Paul? Absolutely. Tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be? Who's it going to be with? I'd like to really figure out a way to monetize the the podcast. and And I want to monetize it in a way that I'm proud of. I want to 
create value for marketers in the same way I'm creating value for listeners, connecting them with people, connecting my listeners with products that make the world a better place and connecting listeners with products that help them live a better life. I'd find that to be highly satisfying. That's great, Paul. We wish you so much luck with that. We, we love your podcast. We hope you'll continue doing it for a long time and, and find that monetization goal. And we want to thank you for your time. <laughs> because money will make me happy. Right, Sandy? <laughs> right, Cammy? Right? That's all right. we need is a little That's bit all we of need more, more. That's right. Thanks, That's Paul. Fun. You've been hey, great. You. It's a lot of fun. Glad to know you all. Thank you for having me. Hey there, Cammy here with a personal finance update. In our conversation with Paul Olinger, he talked about having enough. Quote unquote enough is a highly personal concept. Not only does the definition differ from person to person, it can change over the arc of one's life. Determining how much is enough involves honest soul searching, some visioning, and then math. So let's explore. Step one is to identify the context and time of which you're asking if you have enough. Are you negotiating raise, deciding to change jobs or professions, looking to stop working for a short period of time or forever, making a decision about how to diversify a concentrated stock position, determining how much life insurance to buy? Are you working on a marital settlement agreement as part of a divorce? Are you determining how much money you can tap into from a trust that is established for your benefit and also for your progeny? Or is this a philosophical exercise? As you can see, there are numerous situations in life that prompt people to think about how much is enough, and the context and time period implied in the question are really important factors for answering it. This is especially true of determining how much is enough is part of a high-stakes, irrevocable decision you're making that will impact you for decades or even for the rest of your life. Step two involves answering the question, enough what? When people talk about having enough, they're usually talking about money. Be sure to consider additional factors involved in the definition of enough for you, like time, freedom, friendships, emotional support, and other intangibles. Often these things have an indirect money-related cost, and it helps to know everything you're measuring before you can even evaluate how much of it you need or want. Next, consider your personal values, the purpose that drives your life, and your priorities. These are the things that are most important to you. Thinking about these factors in conjunction with the context, time period, and resources will help you create a tangible vision for what enough means to you. This visioning exercise is important because it will allow you to mentally try on enough to make sure it works for you. Imagine how you'll be spending your time, where you'll be spending it, and who you'll be spending it with. Also, envision whether or not you'll be making money in addition to where, how, what, and with whom you'll be spending money. How will these activities support your values, purpose, and priorities? Will they provide your life with the meaning and satisfaction you desire? If your definition of enough is meant to cover decades, be sure to really challenge yourself on how your vision for these things may shift over time. We have a word of caution here. Envisioning who you'll be in the distant future and what you'll be doing is an extremely challenging exercise. How will you know right now if you're going to desire a mountain home or a beach house in the future? or if you want to become an angel investor, or if you'll want to move to Europe for part of each year and purchase a home there, or if you'll need long-term care assistance in the later years of your life. It's impossible to contemplate all future decisions now. That said, do the best you can do to consider likely decisions that could come up down the road 
and which fit with your purpose, values, and priorities. And don't worry, when new decisions surface in the future, you'll be able to evaluate them based on the facts and circumstances at that time. The next step is to do some math to figure what it will take to achieve your vision of enough. We prepare long-range financial projections for clients all the time at Experian. While you don't need an advisor to run the numbers for you, it can be helpful to have an objective professional help you develop reasonable assumptions for costs, inflation, investment returns, and other factors that are involved in calculating how much is enough for you. They can also help you determine how much additional cushion you might want to pad the projection with. If the long-range projections indicate that you already have enough, congratulations. This should provide you with peace of mind and a feeling of security to confidently make decisions. If, on the other hand, you haven't accumulated enough, you have some choices to make. You can keep working toward accumulating more until you reach your goal of enough, or you can revisit your vision to determine if there are trade-offs you're willing to make now or, or later to scale down and achieve a new vision of enough sooner. Finally, while it can be difficult to avoid the influence of others, we strongly encourage you to resist the urge to be swayed by their opinions and actions. This is your life, and you'll gain the most satisfaction by living it in service of what's important to you. We hope you enjoyed today's financial insight. For more, you can listen to the end of our podcast or go to our blog Fathom at experient.com forward slash Fathom. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.